0: to the
1: enemy.
2: Well, I've been in the service a long time. Name and rank, sailor. It's an army, actually.
0: Answer the question, and address him as General Sir.
1: Captain John Patrick Mason, General Sir. Her Majesty's SAS, retired, of course.
2: You're a long way from home, Captain. How the hell are you involved in this?
1: Oh, I have a unique knowledge of this prison facility. I was uh, formerly a guest here.
2: Did they bother to tell you who I am,
1: why I'm doing this? Or are they just using you like they do everybody else? All I know is you were big in Vietnam. I saw the highlights on television.
2: And you wouldn't have any fucking idea what it means to lead some of the finest men on God's earth into battle and then see their memory betrayed by their own fucking government. I don't
1: quite see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million. And, uh, this is not combat.
3: Mm.
1: It's an act of lunacy, General Sir. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot.
2: The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson.
1: Patriotism is the virtue of the vicious, according to Oscar Wilde. <laughs> oh. well, thank you for making my point.
2: Where are the guidance chips? Where are the guidance chips?
1: I destroyed them. That was a bad move, soldier. Does that mean you'll execute a smoke?
4: Welcome to the Mad Dad Movie Review, a podcast full of first time movie reviews starring Mads and her dad. I'm Mads. And I'm her dad. And this is Mad Dad Movie Review. Hey guys, welcome to a very special episode of Mad Dad Movie Review. As today I'm going to be celebrating the career of the late, great Sean Connery by talking about 1996's The Rock.
3: Following is a state secret, gentlemen. Disclose it to any party, and you will be subject to prosecution. His name is John Mason, a British national, incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage. 81 tourist. The Rock's a tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat.
2: A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike
3: on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah.
0: Hiya, oh, yeah. I'm an agent with the uh, F- FBI. I'm Stanley Goodspeed.
3: But of course you are. At least he got his name
0: right. Now, all
3: that stands between a city and a disaster.
0: The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. That's why you're coming with us. Is a man who's never seen combat. You're a chemical freak. <laughs>
3: I'm a chemical super freak, actually. And another who's been out of action for 30 years. Show us on the blueprints. I can't. My blueprint was in my head. Fortunately, some things you'll never forget. But don't worry. It'll all come back to me. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys.
0: Welcome to The Rock. We got
3: visitors. Sean Connery. you sure you're ready for this?
0: I'll do my best.
1: Your best. Losers always whine about their best.
0: Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. I drive a Volvo. Beige one. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? Ed
3: Harris. Fire. summer get ready
4: to rock all right so i'm gonna be handling the episode solo for one more week guys madeline was originally scheduled to return this week but unfortunately we all woke up on halloween morning to the unfortunate news that legendary actor sean connery had passed away in his home in the bahamas at the age of 90. Seeing as Madeline isn't familiar with Connery, and she was already preparing another episode that we've now postponed for a few weeks, we both felt it was only appropriate that I handle the reins on this episode, and that we promise that next week she will be back full-time, 100%. So getting back to Sean Connery, I mean... What more could I possibly say about the man that hasn't already been said a thousand times before? I mean, he first broke into the scene in the 50s with acting and theater roles, um, doing all of them until 1962 when he landed his breakthrough role that we all remember as James Bond, a role that he played play in for seven films. Connery would also be featured in movies from Alfred Hitchcock, Sidney Lumet, John Huston, and Richard Attenborough, to name a few. His popularity would peak in the 1980s with big roles in films such as The Untouchables, The Name of the Rose, and, of course, Highlander. But even in the the 90s, as his career was beginning to wind down, he was still one of the most popular actors in Hollywood. Speaking of the 90s, that brings us to the film we're talking about today, Michael Bay's The Rock from 1996. Of all the films in Sean Connery's career, I decided to focus on The Rock for various reasons. Not only is it one of the last big roles that Connery would portray, portray sorry it's also one of my favorite action films that reminded me, while rewatching it, of just how much fun big studio action films from the 90s just were. They all had their moments of big-time cheese, but the end product would usually deliver something fierce for the viewer. They were the definition of a popcorn film, and The Rock is a glowing example of a popcorn movie. I remember renting this one on VHS when it first hit video, and I probably watched it about three to four times that weekend. I remember the comedy hitting me pretty good and the action scenes being pretty intense. I had been a big fan of Michael Bay's previous film, his debut, Bad Boys, so you could say I was definitely anticipating his follow-up feature. This was a huge film upon its 1996 release, and today I'm going to break it down and explain why. But first, it's my job to let everyone know that they can listen to previous episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, Breaker, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. And you can follow us on Facebook.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, Instagram.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, Twitter.com at Mad Dad Movie Pod, and YouTube.com at Mad Dad Movie Review. And please leave us a review if you can. It always helps with our algorithm. And finally, email any questions, comments, or requests to Mad Dad Movie Review at gmail.com. That being said, let's hit that nitty gritty. So
3: let's get down to the nitty gritty.
4: So The Rock was released on June seventh, nineteen 1996 from Hollywood Pictures, opening up in first place against Mission Impossible, Twister, The Phantom, and Dragonheart. Opening weekend box office was $25.1 million, going on to gross $335.1 million worldwide on a budget of $75 million. It was directed by Michael Bay, produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, written for the screen by David Weisberg, Doug Cook, and Mark Rosner, edited by Richard Francis Bruce, music by Nick glennie smith and Hans Zimmer, and cinematography by John Schwartzman. Starring Sean Connery as John Patrick Mason, Nicholas Cage as Stanley Goodspeed, Ed Harris as General Hummel, David Morse as Major Baxter, John Spencer as FBI Director James Womack, William Forsyth as FBI Agent Ernest Paxton, Michael Bain as Commander Charles Anderson, Vanessa Marcelle as Carla Pestalozzi, John C. McGinley as Captain Hendricks, Tony Todd as Captain Darrow, Bukin Woodbine as Gunnery Sergeant Crisp, Philip Baker Hall as Chief Justice, Stuart Wilson as General Al Kramer, and finally Claire Forlani as Jade Angelou. Alright guys, let's jump over to the Crick's Corner and see what they had to say about the film. <laughs> So, The Rock has a current Rotten Tomatoes score of 66% from 65 reviews, a Metascore of 58 from 24 reviews, Cinema score of A, and a Letterboxd Average score of 3.4 out of 5. The general consensus says, for visceral thrills, it it can't be beat. Just don't expect The Rock to engage your brain. It's also worth mentioning this is the only Michael Bay film to have a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave it 3.5 stars, praising it as a first-rate, slam-bang action thriller with a lot of style and no little humor. Tony McCarthy from Variety gave it a positive review, saying, "...the yarn has its share of gaping holes and jaw-dropping improbabilities, but director Michael Bay sweeps them all aside with his never-take-a-breath pacing." Richard Carlis of Time gave it, or actually he expressed favorable opinions towards the film, saying, Slick, brutal, and almost human. This is the team spirit action movie Mission Impossible should have been. And then finally, Tom Ryman from Collider called it Bay's best film, saying, It's not only Bay's finest film, it's also a perfect snapshot of the height of 90s action movies. So the uh, the film did have some awards and nominations. It was nominated at the Academy Awards for Best Sound. It actually won the MTV Movie Award for Best On-Screen Duo. Actually, Connery and Cage won that one. And Sean Connery won, went on to win the Blockbuster Entertainment Award for Best Supporting Actor. It's worth mentioning that this was selected for a limited edition Criterion release with an essay written by Roger Ebert back in 2001, something I actually own myself on DVD. And in 2014, Time Out Magazine ranked it 74th on their Top Action Films list. Alright, so now that we got that out of the way, let me just tell you guys why I love this film. I love The Rock because of the lengths Goodspeed goes to to not swear throughout. I love it because it features Tony Todd in a larger role than what I'm used to seeing. I love it because of all the explosions going off in every other scene. I love it because of exploding cockroaches. I love it because it's my favorite comedy performance of his entire filmography. I love the film because of the intense practical effects makeup thanks to Steve Anderson and Tony Gardner. I love this film because of Womack's wrist hanging comeuppance. I love it because of the shower standoff scene. I love this film because most of the humor and gags actually work for this film. I love it because it's a 90's Jerry Bruckheimer production. I love this film because it's my favorite Ed Harris showcase. I think he plays the villain with a uh, conscience role so well. And finally, I love this film because it's a grunge thing. Okay guys, so before I usually jump into the plot, Uh, Lately, I've been giving you guys a brief origins tale um, about the movies. And so what I got for this one is Jonathan Hensley. He's a a writer in Hollywood, uh, went on to direct The Punisher back in 2004. He participated in writing the script, which became the subject of dispute with the WGA, otherwise known as the Writers Guild of America. Uh, The the spec script that was written by David Weisberg and Douglas Cook was reworked by several writers, but other than the original team, Mark Rosner was the only one granted official credit by the Guild Arbitration. The rule is that the credited writing team must uh, contribute 50% of the final script, effectively limiting credits to the screenplay's initial authors, plus one rewrite team. Uh, Despite their work on the script... Neither Hensley nor Aaron Sorkin were credited for the film. Uh, Michael Bay then wrote a open, an open letter of protest in which he criticized the arbitration uh, procedure as a sham and a travesty. He said Hensley had worked closely with him on the film and should have received a screen credit. It's also worth noting that Quentin Tarantino was at one point brought on as an uncredited screenwriter. Um... Yeah, L.A.-based British screenwriting team Dick Clement and Ian LaFranca... Uh, I'm sorry, Ian La LaFranace? Shit, I can't pronounce it. These two, they were brought in at Connery's request to rewrite his lines, but ended up altering much of the film's dialogue instead. It was Nick Cage's idea that his character wouldn't swear his uh, little... Uh, euphemisms including G whiz and all uh, stuff like that throughout um, I actually didn't know until doing some research or actually I should rather say I didn't realize this character does not swear in this movie and it's actually a pretty big plot point um, as far as uh, not not so much as as, as the um, as it pertains to the plot but it's it's kind of kind of a big deal as far as the dialogue goes in the film. I have never noticed it until just rewatching it yesterday and today and uh doing some research so um uh, wow good 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 job Ed uh Bay had worked closely with Ed Harris to develop his character as concretely as possible, later adding a sympathetic edge to Hummel, which personally I am not too much a fan of um. There were tensions during the shoot between Bay and Disney Studios, Um, their execs who were supervising the production uh, on the commentary track for the Criterion release. Bay recalls a time when he was preparing to leave the set for a meeting with the executives when he was approached by Sean Connery in golfing attire. Connery, who was also a producer on the film, uh, executive producer, He asked Bay where he was going, and when Bay explained he had a meeting with the execs, Connery asked if he could accompany him. Bay complied, and when he arrived in the conference room, the executive's jaws dropped when they saw Connery appear from behind. According to Bay, Connery then stood up for Michael and insisted that he was doing a good job and should be left alone. All right, so... Let's dump uh, let's, let's, let's into this movie, it's, it's, it's a lot, and you know, big fan of this movie. Alright, the film opens with the opening credits set to shots of a military funeral with General Hummel uh, contemplating his plan while we hear Hummel's soldiers calling out for help over the radio, but then we hear them mentioning nobody coming for them as they're killed. As he's suiting up and removing his wedding band, we next hear a voiceover from Hummel saying, Congressman Weaver and esteemed members of the Special Armed Services Committee, I come before you to protest a grave injustice. It has to stop. So this is Hummel. This is played by Ed Harris. He's going to be our film's um, central antagonist. Um, he's more or less just a disgruntled general. Um, We heard some voiceover during the credits of back when he was uh, in the service with his men and they were killed in combat. And there's more to it as the film goes on as to the why's, as it pertains. Um, And we'll just get to that as the film progresses. Um, So Hummel is next seen walking in the pulling down rain to his wife's grave with a bouquet of flowers. When he gets to her gravesite, he puts the flowers down and tells her he misses her so much, but there's something he has to do, and that he couldn't do it with her there. That he tried, but still doesn't have their attentions. He says he hopes this elevates their thinking and asks her not to think any less of him before putting his medal on her tombstone and walking away. The shot then fades out into a rainy night from Hummel's men, or with Hummel's men as they invade the naval's Weapon Depot for the biochemical rockets that they are going to be using for the film's um, big hostage uh, hostage takeover. So this scene, we get, we're we introduced to all of his men. Um, John C. McGinley um, is driving, Hummel's in the passenger seat. Uh, David Morse is there as well as other soldiers who have gone rogue and are now teaming with Hummel uh, for this uh, assignment. Uh, they more or less go in. They're shooting, They're not killing members or guards. They're actually hitting them with um, darts because I believe uh, David Morse's character mentions uh, the darts wearing off after 30 minutes. So they're just going into this chamber with this big bright blue like light going on like a like a neon like a black light and they're it's in a freezer um typical in 90s um action shot they're loading uh, the rockets one by one and when the last one or one of the last ones uh gets picked up by one of the soldiers he drops it by accident we see these green like they're almost like giant like marbles or bouncing balls like them rubber bounce balls you get from the machine at the grocery store for a quarter it looks like them they're like neon green but they've got this chemical and they're really sensitive and if one of these bursts well we're going to see it here one of them rolls out it let me describe it's like strands of them that line up inside this case that goes into the rocket and when he was unloading the rocket, it fell over, and one of the green balls fell out, and it hit the wall and broke, and everyone immediately runs out. David Morris' character um, runs out and locks the, the place up, and, but the guy who drops it still lock, is still in there, and he's just screaming and begging to let him out. And David Morse is just standing there, just locking up and watching him as he's bubbling up in this really wicked effect. Like, I mentioned, like, Tony Gardner and company coming in for the makeup, and this is why. Like, this is definitely, like, practical, gnarly stuff. Like, the guy starts bubbling out. And then you see, like, in this really cool effect, like, the bubbles start bursting. Like, his skin's melting right in front of us. It's a really weird. Not weird, but it's it's crazy to see, like, almost 25 years later, like, how it's done. Like, it, you'll never see that today. So the dude dies a pretty crazy death. And they carry on. They take off. The scene ends. Um, we cut to an FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C., this is we are this is when we're introduced to dr Stanley Goodspeed uh the biochemist played by nicholas Cage uh, this was pre off the walls cage i mean he still you he still has the cage like angst in him, but like <laughs> it doesn't come out just yet, but this is a pretty good uh this is actually one of my favorite roles of his this um I love his quirkiness um he's like. Tries to act all tough, but when it comes down to like getting down to, to just brass tacks, like he just kind of like buckles. That's kind of who his character is. Um, so he's, we see him at this point. He's sitting in this office with uh, his trainee, and he pretty much has a um, uh, what do they call it? That, that like um, he's got a thing set up, whatever. Dad, it's called a Rube Goldberg machine, okay? The guy comes, a guy comes in with a box and he opens it up and it is a Beatles record. He's questioned why he's got it delivered to the office, which he says because Carla, his girlfriend, which just doesn't, doesn't accept his expense. Uh, how does he, how does he word it? She doesn't approve his spending more or less. And then uh, it's a $600 Beatles vinyl and says he's got it because he is a Beatles maniac and vinyl sounds better. An alarm goes off, which sends Goodspeed and his trainee, Aisha sure Wood, played by the great Todd Luiso, um, along with some cockroaches. They all come into this gas chamber to check on a package they received, which turns out to be C4 explosives and a corrosive gas that begins eating their suits when the gas gets leaked out. So... <clears throat> They go in their suits, the two of them, and their case of cockroaches. And they're just, um, it's, a, it's a, like an old wooden crate. They open it up, and it's got some old fetish porno mags from like the, the 50s, 60s. A couple other things, and then there's a baby doll. And Aisha starts playing with the doll, and then all of a sudden, it starts spraying out this gas. And this is when shit hits the fan. And when Goodspeed removes some more hay from the box, he sees the C-4 four explosive. So it's your typical Hollywood, you know, tension moment. He, the, the The clock's going down. He's kind of diffused the bomb. Meanwhile, the trainee's in there, like, freaking out. There's a funny moment where they tell him that they have to inject themselves in the heart, um with this big needle, um, because there's no time left before the, the gas kills them, and, like, Aisha was not having it, he's like, you want me to stick, you want me to stick myself in the heart with this needle, are you fucking serious, it's a funny moment, um, cockroaches, meanwhile, are exploding one by one, and then, like I mentioned, at the nick of time, with, like, only three, two or three seconds left, he defuses the bomb, Everyone's saved, and then we cut immediately to good speed at home. Drunk, naked, with just him and his acoustic guitar, or no, it might be a regular guitar, but it's just him and his guitar sitting in a chair. He's naked and drunk, like I mentioned, playing this guitar, listening to his new record that he got. When his girlfriend Carla comes home, he asks or she asks how his day was. He tells her, and she's like, "Oh, okay." And at the end of, at the tail end of his little monologue, and when he answers a question of how his day went, he makes a, a passing comment about like feeling sorry for people bringing children into the world, like adamantly. And then that's when she um, tells him that she's pregnant. So yeah, cool. <laughs> and he's wowed by the news. She questions what he said prior to that uh, about did he mean what he said. Baba, it's a cute back and forth between these two. Um, pretty good chemistry going on. It's the, the um, um, what's her name? It's her first film. Um, uh, Vanessa Marcel. It's her first movie, and they, like I said, they got some, they got some pretty good chemistry. I feel. Um, so they're they're cute little back and forth ends with her getting down on her knees and proposing so the female in a rare occurrence is proposing to the male um Alcatraz yeah that's the next scene we see uh Alcatraz tour going on with Hummel and his men they are um Ranger Bob is giving them a, a little tour of the place and there's this thing where they go Everyone lines up and gets into the cells. And then Ranger Bob invites them all to become inmates for a little bit. So they all go in their cells. And at this point, Humble pops up behind them. And he says that the tour is over. Um, more or less locking everyone in the cells for real. Um, some of the guards get shot <clears throat> by um, Booking Woodbine's character and some others. So they're pretty much taking over the joint. Um, setting up shop. Along with all the rockets, before announcing to the hostages they've taken over the rock and it's not their intentions to harm anyone. And then we cut to Hummel reminding his men that they are now in harm's way and tells them, or he tells the new soldiers that he's recruited them and that they're going to be branded as traitors, that's punishable by death. He tells them that they'll be paid a fee of $1 million each, but cannot return on U.S. soil again.
1: Catching on deck!
2: Stand easy, man. Make no mistake about it, gentlemen. We are now in harm's way. For Major Baxter and I, this is the last campaign in a career dating back to Tet 68. Likewise for Captain Hendricks. Gunnery Sergeant Crisp who cut their teeth under my command in Desert Storm. Captain Fry, Captain Darrow, this is my first operational situation with you and your men. And I have to say, thus far, your conduct reflects your reputations.
1: Thank you, General. Thank you, sir.
2: We have achieved our position through poise, precision, and audacity. To this, we must now add resolve. We'll be branded as traitors, gravest capital crime, punishable by death. A Couple hundred years ago, a few guys named Washington, Jefferson, and Adams were branded as traitors by the British. And now they're called Patriots. In time, so shall we. God willing, in less than 48 hours, you will evacuate this island in gunships under cover of hostages and VX gas warheads. Your destination, a non-extradition treaty country. You will each be paid a fee of $1 million for services rendered. But you can never again set foot on your native soil live with that the men of marine force recon are selected to carry out illegal operations throughout the world when they don't come home their families are told fairy tales about what happened to them and denied compensation well I have choked on these lies my entire career
3: well here and now the lies stop
2: God be with all of you. Man your positions, man.
4: Hummel calls the U.S. director and warns him in this scene about the hostage situation. Um, The guy he calls um, General Al Kramer, played by Stuart Wilson. The the, um, villain from Lethal Weapon 3 and, oddly enough, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 also was the lead villain in a film called no escape that came out around this time as well as one of the corrupt uh politicians in another Bruckheimer movie Enemy enemy of the state so it tells them that he's going to call them back with his demands but basically to warn them that they have taken over the place during their briefing hummel calls into the pentagon and tells general kramer
2: remember operation desert storm those surgical hits made by our smart bombs covered so well on CNN? It was my men on the ground that made those hits possible by lazing the targets. 20 of them were left to rot outside Baghdad after the conflict ended. No benefits were paid to their families. No medals conferred. These men died for their country, and they weren't even given a goddamn military burial. The situation is unacceptable. You will transfer $100 million from the Grand Cayman Red Sea Trading Company account to an account I designate. From these funds, reparations of $1 million will be paid to each of the 83 Marines' families. The rest of the funds I will disperse at my discretion. Do I make myself clear? Except for the Red Sea Trading Company. What is that? Identify yourself. This is FBI Director Womack, General. It's a slush fund where the Pentagon keeps proceeds from illegal arms sales. Jesus, Frank,
3: this is classified
2: information. You alert the media i launch the gas you refuse payment i launch the gas you've got 40 hours till noon day after tomorrow to arrange transfer of the money i am aware of your countermeasure you know and i know it doesn't stand a chance hummel from alcatraz
4: out to give an example of just how deadly the gas is in the next scene the general states that one teaspoon of the stuff can wipe out everyone up to 100 feet and that if just a teaspoon hits the atmosphere that it'll kill every living organism in an eight block radius. This is when the Pentagon plans to send in the most skilled Navy SEALs accompanied by their best biochemists to take care of things. Cutting to Goodspeed and Carla on the rooftop getting intimate. He then gets a phone call during this session from the FBI um, telling him that he is going to San Francisco pack up. They're downstairs waiting he ends up telling Carla in the end to just after they're going back and forth about the situation and rightfully so because he just made her some promises about being together and getting married and having a family and then cut to this part and he's got to go to San Francisco. So she's pretty upset, like I said, rightfully so and he ends up telling her just to pack up and get a room for the night and it's most likely going to be a training op. Um. The team, accompanied by uh, Michael Bean, in the next part, he tells he tells them that he needs someone to guide them through the tunnel system. But the former warden died in 1979, and all the former guards that were contacted are useless. This is when the chief justice mentions Mason against Womack's arguments. He says that he was a highly trained S.A.S. operative who is his age now. And that he won't hit the streets. The next scene we're introduced to Sean Connery. uh, In this very kind of over the top. Little introductory prison sequence. With him. Dutch angles. Dark shadows. Slow-mo shots. Of just a very loud Hans Zimmer score. Just to show him in a cell. Being accompanied out. And chained up with a bunch of guards. To... This little interrogation room, it is him and Woman No, at first it's him and um, Forsyth's character, um, Paxton, Agent Paxton. And when Paxton can't get through to Mason, uh, they end up sending in Goodspeed. And they kind of weren't expecting this to happen. Hi. I'm an agent with the uh, uh, Federal...
0: FBI. Uh, well, my, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Of course
1: I am. And you have an emergency. That's right. And you need my help. Exactly right.
0: Coffee. Yes. Well, that was in fact going to be my next. Go get a cup of coffee in here, please. Enough to take these off, Mr. Mason. Really, a gesture of your good faith. Prisoner requests to have his handcuffs taken off. Well, why don't you go ahead and have his handcuffs taken off, please? Well, I guess that's one way to go. This is a pardon and release contract from the attorney general's office. Now it makes you a free man, provided you cooperate. So if you'll just uh, sign uh, uh, where it says signature. That's yes, signature.
1: Demio Dionysus and Donna I fear the Greeks,
0: even when they bring gifts.
1: Well, an educated man. That rules out the possibility of you being a field agent.
0: In point of fact, I am a field agent, Mr. Mason. Really? Yes.
1: In which field? Anti-terrorism. Then you're trained in weaponry, explosives, and mortal combat. Well trained. Then it's the Fairmont Hotel. I want a sweet, a shower, a shave, and the feel of a suit.
0: May I also suggest uh, a haircut?
1: Am I out of style?
0: Unless you're a 20-year-old guitarist from Seattle. It's a grunge thing. Grunge? Yeah, well, uh, okay.
4: thank you very much. All right. So he signs up the agreement, signs up, tear, and then um, gives it to Goodspeed. Goodspeed then in turn gives it to Womack, and then we see him tear it up. Uh, and tells Goodspeed that he's on a need-to-know basis, and right now he doesn't need to know. This will be a line that Stanley's going to try and reuse against Mason in the next scene, but to no avail. And this is when we cut to the Fairmont Hotel with our buddy Sean Connery, Mr. John Patrick Mason, getting styled up. They're getting rid of his long blonde hair, and cutting it to a shorter look, a non-grunge look, and um, doing so outside. Meanwhile, prior to this, it should be worth mentioning that he was in the shower, singing in San Francisco, and having the guards outside to not, behind their backs, actually behind the shower curtain, he calls room service as a ploy to get all these people to stuff up with all these lobsters and appetizers and stuff so that they're distracted from what's going on outside. And that is, at first, you think it's a typical you know, haircut going on. But then we cut to underneath of his uh, hair apron and we see that Mason is sort of making a little hand noose, so to speak. And we're not sure what's going on quite yet. But then we see afterwards and they have a little one-on-one together that they shake on um, his word about being released after this is all said and done. When Mason and Womack shake hands, uh, Mason wraps this noose thing around Womack's arm and proceeds to throw him off the roof and hangs him by his wrist. Uh, At first it breaks and he's screaming out for help. Meanwhile, Mason's trying to hold on and Goodspeed's pointing his gun at him more or less, Mason's calling his bluff because he's on the Goodspeed at this point. <clears throat> he knows Goodspeed's full of shit and not a full-on agent. He knows he's probably just some sort of scientist or chemist and it shows here because once again he tells him he's not going to do anything and what he does instead is Mason takes the rope and just ties it around a chair and lets it go, distracting <clears throat> Goodspeed to hold the rope and call for help while Mason gets away um, Mason's in the getaway in the elevator and the it's funny the hairstylist in there in the corner um, crouched down saying, crying out uh, saying that he all he wants to know is that he's happy with his hair then they get out outside into the streets of San Francisco and, to pre- and they proceed to go on a car chase. Mason takes a um, Hummer I believe uh, from my memory I uh, didn't write down what car it was so forgive me um He's in a Hummer, and at first, um, Cage is in a Ferrari. Cage ends up up crashing the Ferrari. We get this funny moment. Hey,
0: man. You just fucked up your Ferrari. It's not mine. (laughs) Neither is
4: And then he ends up taking the kid's dirt bike and taking off on that. So... Huge San Francisco car chase like I mentioned, all this stuff going on and it ends, uh, the whole time Mason is also on the phone with uh, information, getting his daughter Jade's phone number so he can contact her and have her meet him at a park or actually it's more of a monument <clears throat> which he does, the chase ends with him getting away and meeting his daughter Jade and her friend Stacy at this monument and when they, she asks him you know, if if he escaped again, he tells her no, because um, that's his whole thing. He's escaped Alcatraz. He's the only person who's ever escaped from Alcatraz. And he tells her that, um, no, he's free. He's a free man. And she's kind of weary at first. And then the police all show up. And then she's like, okay, well, you escaped, blah, blah. But then Nick Cage kind of rescues Mason by uh, say, showing her his badge and saying he's the FBI agent. And he says your your father's helping us with a special case. Well, come on, Mason, we got to go. And they take off together. Um, <laughs> which leads to one of my funny my one of my favorite lines in the movie where he says, "Well, we cut the chit chat, a hole." So next we have Mason meeting with com- Commander Anderson. This is Michael Bain's character to discuss how they are going to enter Alcatraz. Mason begins telling them how to get inside before he forgets and tells them that he'll remember once inside. Mason and Womack go back and forth about him actually joining the team that pretty much ends with Mason getting his way and joining the team physically as their guide. See, Womack's idea was for Mason to just be, they needed him for this moment, basically, more or less. Just to point them in the right direction, tell them how to do a certain amount of things, but nah, it's not going to work for him. He wants to go himself, and he ends up winning this. Um, ah, bet that goes without warning from Anderson, telling Mason that if he compromises his men's lives, he'll bury him out there himself. So we got Goodspeed now, trying to rally all the SEALs together to brief them on how to defuse the Rockets, but he's told by Anderson that he's joining them personally as well this cut this means he um, what happens next is he charges into the bathroom, pukes into his sink and then he's pushed around by agent Paxton, William Forsyth's character of all people in the bathroom to go in to just do it. He assures him that he will be protected and that's when Goodspeed tells him about his pregnant girlfriend and Paxton tells him he'll send for his girlfriend to be brought to the command center himself. The next morning, Kramer calls Hummel or Hummel to tell him that they're having a few issues with the account transfer due to the president's stance on terrorism. Hummel reminds him it's about justice and that they've got 17 hours to come up with the money. The seals are then given the green light to invade Alcatraz as Anderson gives his speech to the entire room or the entire team about who and what they're up against. They suit up. And head out on their choppers as they take off for the island. So there's three choppers total. Um, Hummel's men pick up all three, but at first they lose one, and the other two are mistaken for decoys. The one they lost goes and deploys Goodspeed, the seals, and Mason all into the water. Hummel orders his men to patrol the entire island while we see the men enter Alcatraz from the... uh, I'm sorry, the SEALs enter Alcatraz from an underwater tunnel below. Initially, thinking that they were brought into a room without any exits, we see Mason look down and there's this little crawl space with flames being shot and some gears that are kind of moving through them he crotches down and starts timing everything and then in a pretty cool scene begins to roll through it stopping in certain moments and going in others she's just going through it all in a timely fashion and then the door that they see without a handle that's locked from the outside suddenly opens up and we are treated to welcome to the Rock. Now the men enter through more pipes into the sewage tunnel system and then they reach the shower room as Hummel's men continue sweeping the island while trying to enter the shower system, the, I'm sorry, the shower room, the motion sensor that's sitting when the manhole above goes off after Michael Bean's character, Anderson, he thinks it's um, like a beam sensor and tries cutting it with a mirror. So when he thinks he's got it cut, he proceeds to hit the sensor with his little vision um, straw. That's what I call it. It's a vision straw. That's what it looks like. And it goes off uh, alerting the men as they all head to the shower room to catch them as they enter. And then that's when we are treated to this bad boy. This
2: is General Hummel. Drop your weapons. Drop them! Anderson here, General Hummel. Commander. Team leader. Commander Anderson, if you have any concern for the lives of your men, you will order them to safety their weapons and place them on the deck. This is not happening. Sir, we know why you're out here. God knows I agree with you. But like you, I swore to defend this country against all enemies, foreign, sir, and domestic. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. You know goddamn well I can't give that order. We're dead. Your unit is covered from an elevated position, Commander. I'm not going to ask again. Don't do anything stupid. No one has to die here.
0: Man following the General,
2: you're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that?
4: We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on pissed
3: on by the Pentagon, but that doesn't give you the right to mutiny! You call it what you want!
2: You're down there, we're up here! You walk into the wrong goddamn room, Commander! it, Commander, one last time, you tell your men to safety their weapons, drop them on the deck. I cannot
3: give that order!
2: I am not going to repeat that order! I will not give that order! What the hell is wrong with you, man? Stand fast! Oh, my God. Let's waste these fuckers. One last time, you order your men to safety their weapons!
4: So then after this all goes off, it's this complete haywire. Everyone... Anderson's men's gone. They are all dead. Dead is Dillinger, unfortunately, leaving just two, Mason and Goodspeed. Um, In this moment, Hummel expresses immediate regret about the attack as Goodspeed and Mason are left to defend themselves. Mason tries to leave at this point with Goodspeed making attempts to intervene and stop him. He even goes as far as to call the office. He calls Womack and Paxton. Um... Tells them that he's trying to leave. What should they do? Uh, Paxton says it's unacceptable. Mason says you know he's got a gun, and then Paxton says, "What well, do you have? A fucking water pistol?" And funny ass scene. Um, and that's where he's like, "Yeah, you're right." He takes the gun and goes after good, or Goes after Mason, and he you know points his gun to, to no avail. <laughs> he knew it was gonna work because he immediately says the triggers. The um, you forgot the the cap the. What do they call it? The lock. Safety. Safety. You've got the safety. Um, so yeah. Paxton demands Womack tell him the truth about Mason. There's a lot of... You can sense that there's there's definitely a history between Womack and Mason. I mean, why else would the whole incident at the Fairmont Hotel go down? So yeah. Make, make, Paxton pulls Womack out. Says, I need to have a word with you one-on-one. Does so. Ask him what the fuck is going on. So, Womack says 1962. J. Edgar Hoover is head of the FBI. Some say the country. It's no secret he kept microfilm files on prominent Americans and Europeans, de Gaulle, British members of the parliament, even the prime minister. This guy had dirt on everybody in the world, and Mason was the British operative who stole the files. Bureau agents caught him at the Canadian border, and the British claimed they'd never heard of him that's when he goes on to say they held him without a trial until he gave up the microfilm but he never did. He's basically pissed off for being held without a trial his entire life and knows all the FBI's biggest biggest secrets. So yeah. Put your shoes on John Mason's shoe. Put yourself in John Mason's shoes, you'd be pretty effing pissed too. Um while continuing to convince Mason to help him, Goodspeed reveals the truth about their mission and that there are 15 rockets up above that he needs help defusing. Basically, he tells him what's going on. Mason's like, but I got a daughter. Information that could have been brought to my attention earlier. And that's when Goodspeed argues that it was in um, top secret, you know, it was in... They they basically back and forth between the two of them, um, typical in this movie. But you know, it's it's some f- really funny stuff and some really I'd argue clever dialogue. Um, while defu- while investigating the dead soldiers, uh, one has no weapon or radio, so that tells the uh, the Hummel and his men that they have some more um, people left that they have to flesh out, as they call it so the two begin the two head up to begin defusing the rockets when we get this beautiful piece of dialogue you sure you're ready for this
0: I'll do my best
4: your best
1: losers always whine about their best winners go home
4: and fuck the prom queen
0: Carla was the prom queen really
4: yeah so then they enter the morgue and the first gunfight breaks out uh, with Sean Connery immediately throwing a knife into uh, a guy's neck saying never hesitate um, it's followed by um, another man on the ground um, Mason shoots him in the feet which knocks him down and then well, and when he goes to pull uh, the pin on his grenade to kill all of them that is when... Well, um, People want to say Womack. Mason looks up and he's laying right below a um, little air duct vent thing, which Mason shoots and it falls down and smashes this guy. So the guy's leg's sticking out. It's twitching and uh, Goodspeed's trying to defuse the first rocket. And the foot's jiggling and he's like, question, is that normal? And he's like, can you make it stop? And he's like, what, like kill him again? So some funny dialogue going on between these two while the leg's twitching and he's diffusing the rocket. Uh, Hummel's men um, won't check in. so they head for the morgue and the morgue is where these guys are right now. And they chase the two down into the mine shaft that uh, for a kind of a fun sequence, not gonna lie. they go into the mine shaft, they fall into the mine shaft rather. Onto a cart and began rolling down. Mason gets knocked off. No, Goodspeed gets knocked out. And Mason um, gets his leg caught in the cart when it falls off the track. Because the track's ended. Or, yeah. Um, Couple of men, led by John C. McGinley, come down. And um, yeah. What happens next is uh, Mason pulls himself up. He takes this um, lighter fluid that he has inside of his uh, cargo pants, he squirts it all over um, McGinley's character's legs from below and then proceeds to uh, set him ablaze. They get into a fight, and that's basically, basically how John C. McGinley dies. His legs, he gets burned to death from the waist down. Um, the last two men uh, are shooting at good speed, who is now in a um, little minecart the like a little dangling minecart. Uh one of the two men, it's worth pointing out, is played by Tuco Salmanka from Breaking Bad. Eight hours to oh, um Good speed. Kills him finally. He gets his first emotional kill. Uh Tuco gets killed by him, um while Mason killing the other. Uh it's now eight hours to the deadline, with only three rockets left to defuse. Hummel uses a hostage to get the other two that are left to turn themselves in. Um, Mason and Goodspeed with the rocket chips. Mason tells Goodspeed to defuse the other rockets as he steps on all the collected chips and tells him to continue while he goes to delay Hummel. So we have this scared hostage, um, rightfully so, that Hummel pulls out of the crowd and basically just says, hey, give yourselves up or he eats a bullet. And and the pretty cool scene with Mason walking down the main prison walkway. So everyone kind of sees him. He walks out to the course where the men are with the hostage. And Mason and Hummel have some back and forth going on. What's really going on is Hummel's delaying the process because... Or not Hummel. Um, Mason is delaying the process with Hummel because Goodspeed finds another rocket. Um, it goes and defuses that Mason to Hummel now Mason tells him who he is and as Goodspeed finishes defusing the rocket he's ambushed by a soldier followed by some more but he still manages to break the chit, leaving the other two rockets remaining um, he gets knocked out and in prison the next morning Mason is fixing up his way of escape by taking sheets that he has torn off and tying into a long rope that on the end it looks like a lock like a giant lock of some sort is attached to it meanwhile Mason is not Mason meanwhile Goodspeed is just ranting he keeps repeating the one thing the soldier said before getting knocked out where he told him I'll take pleasure in gutting you boy And Goodspeed's just chilling in his locker or his cell, just repeating it over and over. I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. Like in different tones. Um, And while he's doing this, uh, the Air Force is preparing for a potential airstrike command. Mason eventually gets the cell open and he starts walking towards the water when approached by Goodspeed to convince him to help saying the mission isn't complete. Tells him that he'll do it himself as Mason runs off. Meanwhile, Hummel's men are beginning to get anxious when there's three minutes left and nothing is happening. Hummel's men at this point, Tony Todd, um, David Morse, and the other guy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's uh, he's from Say Anything, if you remember that movie. Um, they're just on his case, and, and clearly Hummel's just... Not trying to go down this road because he's got a heart. He's a villain. He's a vicious son of a bitch, but he's not really because, like, these guys are just beating him down, like, at his worst right now. He's already feeling sick to his stomach about the final clock, you know, striking and his bluff being called. And that's exactly what happens. They call it the last minute, and it's, you know, um, Kramer again, and in typical Kramer fashion, throughout this movie, says it was a delay and they need another hour. Says he got three minutes, and hangs up. And um, they this is uh we get a missile launch tease. As Goodspeed says, "You got three minutes." Nothing happens. He initi he he gives the okay to fire off one of the rockets, which by the way when he finally gives the approval like just the look of joy on like most of their faces like Tony Todd's like yes sir like it's like a little kid like being told finally that he's allowed to open up his presents on Christmas morning it's it's some funny stuff the way though if, if you pay attention to their faces um so yeah they go off and they're setting off this rocket and they do so successfully but then as it's going to hit its target which is the um football stadium you see Hummel on his little computer kind of like just to steer it just change path and it goes into the water and gets destroyed um, that's when it's revealed you know obviously we're down the one rocket now but the president gives his approval to bomb the island. These
3: past few hours have been the longest, darkest of my life. How does one weigh human life? One million civilians against 81 hostages. And in the middle, Frank Hummel. That we have ignored, abandoned or marginalized a great soldier like Frank Hummel. And that American boys have paid for that neglect and blood. Is equally real and equally tragic. We are at war with terror. Fighting war means casualties. This is the worst call I've ever had to make. Airstrike
4: approved. So when the men find out Hummel aborted the rocket path and into the ocean, a standoff occurs between, um... Say anything guy, Tony Todd, David Morse, Ed Harris, it's more or less a Mexican standoff. Hummel isn't ready to kill innocent people while being told to ask for another hour by Michael Morse's character, or David Morris' character. Hummel points his gun at Baxter, while, that's uh, Tony Todd, while he calls for more time, and not, um, I'm sorry, Baxter is David Morris, um, he points his gun in his face and tells him, you know, now I'm telling you as a friend that you put that phone down or I will more or less put a bullet in your head. And he does. He says when he tells the rest that the mission's over and that there's no money, things turn deadly. Um, Hummel is relieved of his duty. All while Mason and Goodspeed are hidden in a nearby room. Um, Fry is um <clears throat> the guy's name I'm talking about from Say Anything. He gets away. Um, Tony Todd gets away. But D- David Morse and Ed Harris in this scene die in this standoff. Um, things go south. They try to talk to uh, Hummel, but he ends up sliding and dying a not-so-heroic death. Uh, Fry and Tony Todd. It's Tony Todd. <laughs> Um, Fry and Darrow, they get away, and Goodspeed and the last rocket or in the lighthouse. Goodspeed's got the last one dice not dice um not thick not done but he's in the middle of taking the uh, chemical out so we can remove the chip, and that's when Tony Todd intervenes. Uh, he's talking to um, Darrow. This is Tony Todd. He's. Trying to get him to walk in front of the rocket by talking about his favorite music and um, asking him if he is a Elton John fan because his favorite's Rocket Man. And in a funny moment, Tony Todd gets blasted. Finally enters the pathway of this rocket, which Nick Cage shoots off, takes him out. Tony Todd flies out with this (laughs) rocket falls down and into this I think uh like side first gets impaled by um a pole. So he's done and on good speeds now in the rooftop with this rocket, he hides the chemical balls um in a little drain with one that gets away and in a kind of an iconic shot from this movie, we get the scene, the shot of uh, Nick Cage diving after the green ball right as it's going over the ledge. And this is when him and Fry have their confrontation. And it ends with um, Fry chasing Goodspeed to the boiler room. He breaks the chip and then kills Fry by putting the ball into his mouth and punching him. Immediately, he takes this needle that he has to inject himself with and finally hits himself in the heart followed by pulling out the green flares that he was told to light off when the mission was accomplished, and he does so. But right as the jet fighters go to bomb, they see the green smoke. One by one, they all break off, except for the last one. Hits his damn night button by accident, deploying a rocket, which blasts, it's fired accidentally. It blasts good speed into the water. He has a moment where we think he's going to die, or isn't he? Mason saves him from above. The two have a moment be, uh, before Mason goes off. Goodspeed claims that he died before telling Mason Womack tore up his pardons. He tells him to grab scuba gear and get to his room where some clothes and $200 will be waiting for him. And then that's when the two go their separate ways. Mason reveals the location of the microfilm to Goodspeed. And then we see, some time later... Goodspeed and his newly uh, wed wife Carla, they're seen stealing the microfilm from a church and driving away. The final lines of dialogue from Goodspeed is, "Honey, do you really want to know who killed JFK?" Before we get a really beautiful shot of the car driving off into a fielded distance with a thunderstorm ahead, as the film cuts to black and we see. A title, we see a, um, a card saying, Dedicated in Loving Memory to Don Simpson. And that is The Rock from 1996. Alright, trivia. I do have myself a good bit a of trivia for this one. Alright, so Sean Connery requested the producers have a cabin built for him on the island because he didn't want to travel from the mainland to the island each day. And eventually, the man got what he wanted. Alcatraz had to remain open during the shoot as it's a national park. Much to Cage's di- much of Cage's dialogue was ablibed. This was his idea, not to swear. The premiere itself was actually held on um, Alcatraz Island. This is Michael Bay's favorite film of his entire filmography. The studio wanted to shoot in LA with only a handful of Alcatraz and San Francisco exterior shoots to complete the illusion. Bay refused, saying, I gotta shoot this island because this island is so fucking bitching. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was offered the role of Goodspeed but didn't feel the script was fully baked. His words, not mine. Only to express regret years later during a Reddit Ask Me Anything. Ed Harris couldn't stop laughing at the Ranger Bob character on set. Some of the Navy SEALs in this movie were played by real-life Navy SEALs. Ed Harris is still not happy with Michael Bay's occasional preference for tight shots while he's acting with his entire body. Yeah, with his entire body. Uh, the minecart scene was initially meant to be a big chase with carts hanging from a ceiling track as opposed to ones on traditional tracks, but we ran out of money. Remnants of it are seen in the hanging cart in which Goodspeed lands in. And this is the same one that he's hanging in in the scene with the two guys after uh, John C. McGinley gets killed. There's a major logic flaw in the movie, said Michael Bay. Why are the boilers working on the rock when the island hasn't been used for years? He answers his own question, saying, screw it, it's entertaining, don't you think? Uh, Ed Harris had issues with his character of General Hummel, or Hummel, the movie's antagonist, as the sympathy he had for the character felt at odds with Hummel's threat of devastating an entire city. There was a lot of gray area, said Bay, and it wasn't fully explored in the film. People told Nicolas Cage, he could never work in an actual blockbuster because he was too quirky. He took that as a challenge. Michael Bay turned down this movie 6 times prior to finally saying yes. The story just wasn't enough, just wasn't serious enough to me, he said. The average shot length in this movie is 2.6 seconds. The average median shot length 2.5. Wow. That is a big, big flashy edit thing from the 90s that I've never personally been down with, but whatevs. Tony Scott was originally supposed to direct, but turned it down to direct the fan instead. Underrated film. That's all I'm going to say. Next year, 96, 25 years. Hmm, okay. And finally, this movie, like I mentioned before, is part of the Criterion Collection. It's spine number is number 108. Alright guys, let's wrap this thing up. So my unbiased MVP pick of the film goes to none other than Sean Connery, because obvious reasons. My Be Kind Rewind Most Rewatchable Moment goes to the shower room standoff and the aftermath explosion during the flush out scene double feature pairing goes to Michael Bay's Armageddon now there's a reason for this and it is the connection between these two films because the president is played by the same actor Stanley Anderson and he's this president in both films and Michael Bay's not really denied nor confirmed this but in a perfect world, these two are connected. Like, these take place in the same universe. So, I like having these double features with the Armageddon and the Rock. The, I think it's fun. Oh, I'm sorry. The Rock and the Armageddon. I think it's a fun double feature. So, have that at it yourself and get at me. And finally, star power. Alright, so at the end of the day, I'm giving the Rock a total of four and a half stars out of five They decided to definitely up the ante for his sophomore feature and securing one of his biggest casts for what I feel is his best movie definitely pays off. While the script, you know, starts to kind of collapse on itself towards the final act, there's enough action and funny dialogue throughout to more than make up for it. This is definitely a Bruckheimer Simpson film. Some of the best 90s films came from them. Ed Harris portrays the film's villain with such a motivation behind him. With such motivation behind his actions i just wish the film gave him more to help make sense of his bluff nicholas cage riding off the oscar win earlier that year kicks off a marathon of massive roles that includes this face off and con air and he's just incredible as the awkward rocket scientist um, <clears throat> while sean Connery definitely brings the house down as mason the rock is a special movie that stands on its own It will never be replicated and will certainly be remembered as one of the best action films of the 1990s. The world will never forget Mr. Sean Connery. Whether it's James Bond, Dr. Henry Jones Sr., Zardoz, Ramirez, Captain Ramius, or John Patrick Mason, he always made the best with every performance and will always be remembered for at least going out on his own terms. He at least got to enjoy in retirement. He, he got to enjoy retirement, you know, for his final 17 years. Something he definitely earned. Rest easy, Mr. Connery. And thank you so much for the childhood memories. All right, guys. So next week we will be back on Monday, November 9th with our special 30th anniversary episode to the day. For a child's play too and that will also mark the full-time return of miss madeline ryan snyder she will be back i miss her to death because i'm not gonna lie these freaking solo episodes are really starting to get to me it's i don't know when you something about hosting a show by yourself i mean the concept was fun i like trying out different ideas and stuff but i don't know I have a better time. I have a funner time doing it with, you know, my PIC next to me. And damn it, she'll be back next week. And I can't wait to do it with her, man. I cannot wait to talk Child's Play 2. It's going to be such a fun episode. One of my favorites. I'm actually looking at my one sheet that I have hanging on the wall as I record this. Um, And yeah, that'll be on Monday. And then after that, I don't know if you checked our Facebook uh, account. If you haven't yet facebook.com mad dad movie review where i announced that we will be changing our release days to tuesdays but next week will be a special monday episode only because the ninth is the actual day 1990 that the film was released so we're the time together get it um yeah and that being said you can also you know that i also posted the uh rest of the schedule for the 2020 season. And uh, if you haven't already checked it out, Facebook.com, Mad Dad Movie Review. Same goes for Instagram.com, Mad Dad Movie Review. YouTube.com, Mad Dad Movie Review. Twitter.com, Mad Dad Movie Pod. We're we're on all. We're on all of those. Um, and, And please, listen. Previous episodes as well. We got them all up. On iTunes, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. And if you can, please, it would mean the world if you just give us a good rating and review. It helps with the algorithm and just it doesn't help. I mean, it doesn't hurt to put the word out. You know what I mean? We're just trying to grow a little bit. That's all. And finally, email any questions, comments, or requests to maddadmoviereview at gmail.com. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to our special Sean Connery Rock episode. Um, Next week, it's back to Mad Dad format. Um, Like I said, I just wanted to get this one out of the way today. Um, I wasn't expecting my kid to be much of a uh, contribution to this episode, so I was like, you know what? I'll I'll handle the reins on this one and uh, yeah that's going to be it for me Um, I hope you guys are taking it easy just mask up and stay safe alright, take care